You're listening to Certified, Canada's class actions podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action, thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to our podcast and with us today is Jeremy Martin from Castles and uh, Jeremy works primarily in the products liability space on class actions. Jeremy, do you want to say a little bit more about yourself? Sure, uh, I guess the easiest way to go about it is following the biography. Uh, I'm a 2012 call, so I've been practicing for eight years going on nine. Uh, I'm a partner at Castles where I do class action defense primarily, but uh, as I think you're probably getting the sense through your studies in this class. Class actions can take a long time to go to trial if they ever do. So you try to maintain about a quarter to a third of your practice in uh, something else so that you can keep your skills sharp, examining witnesses, going to trial, uh, preparing materials, that sort of thing. So complex commercial litigation and product liability makes up about a quarter to a third of the practice. The rest is all uh, class actions. Fantastic. And uh, Jeremy, tell us, um, tell us how you got into class actions. How, how did that come about? Did you just fall into it by becoming a defense lawyer or how did that happen? Uh, it was a goal. It was uh, something I planned out kind of from the beginning. In my second year of law school, I had a, a class actions seminar and it, it seemed really interesting. I, I always knew that I was destined for litigation. I just wasn't... Uh, organized enough or interested enough to do kind of corporate transactional work and so i was interested to see what class actions were like and the professors that i had in that class actions seminar were so immersed in that world and maybe a little bit removed from the uh, from the experience of a student that they would be discussing kind of advanced procedural strategy and policy and the discussions they would have and the debates they would have about how to properly argue one of these juggernauts was just fascinating to me and i, I didn't re- i understood maybe three percent of what they were saying uh at some point you know one of the professors would say you know at this point you still don't have discovery and so the advantage is on the, the defendant's side you got to say an australian accent discovery though. was but i wanted to find out <laughs> right <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah no it was uh that was gary watson and uh jacob Eagles class and we had some great uh, guest speakers in and whatever game they were playing I wanted to play it, it just seemed to be a, a fascinating matching of wits and just almost like a board game or a strategy game while at the same time the, the subject matter uh, kind of spoke to me and I don't know what this says about me but it, it's really always bothered me kind of the the mediocre injustices in the world hmm. you know you can buy something for $800 and if it doesn't work what are you going to do about it Right. If, if the company won't give you a refund, really, what are you going to do? And uh, I mean, I come from a background where, you know, if you were to lose a hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, that that could set you back for months, right? And so that's something that always kind of spoke to me was an opportunity to address that kind of gap in our law. And so between the subject matter, you know, what what these things are intended to do and the way they're argued out, you know, it checked all the boxes, turned all the lights on, uh, sirens were wailing. And so I basically dedicated myself to that for the rest of my law school experience. I I would find an excuse to write about class actions in my constitutional class and write about cloud in my uh, litigation 
my theory of litigation class, I would write about uh, carriage motions and the economics behind those, and just any excuse I had to keep on about class actions. And it's it's been kind of a slog, you know, it's not always easy to get yourself on that team, but uh, now about eight or nine years later, I'm right where I was hoping I would be. Great. Uh, so, and I presume when you say, you know, a $300 loss can set you back months, that's, you know, from a, a, a sort of low income perspective that you know, people, not everyone can afford to just write off 300 bucks and say, well, that's, that's my fault for buying a defective product or something, you know, that they actually have to pursue that amount because otherwise it'll set them back. But um, why then did you become a defense lawyer and not a plaintiff lawyer? This isn't in the uh, questions I sent you, so I'm sort of going rogue, but uh, I wonder if you could tell us about that. Uh, I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure which way I was going to go. I knew I wanted to be involved in class actions generally. And I guess just to go back to your earlier point, uh, th that was absolutely the perspective I was coming from. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I have like a very vivid memory of my mother crying in the car because she got a speeding ticket and oh, just wow. she had no way of dealing with that right and it's like a hundred dollar speeding ticket but it was a crisis for the family right mm. and so uh when i see these actions coming forward that are you know termed individually non-viable you know, it still kind of strikes a chord with me that actually these things can and do really matter mm -hmm. so in my second year third year i actually applied to a lot of plaintiff side class action firms uh, didn't hear anything back a lot of them don't have uh, summer student programs some of them take on articles and again, from that background, uh, you know, you apply to Bay Street because, you know, there's there's debt and everything. Mm -hmm. But once I was on the inside, I was really interested not only in the way that you defend a class action, you know, intellectually. I, I found it really interesting to have all this information and to try to parse out how this action could proceed. Uh, but it's also... There's a bit of a slant, right? Although you have a lot of material resources in your favor, that's counterbalanced by the way the law is slanted against you, right? Mm -hmm. Because I mean, the the standards that you have to prove certification on, and kind of the policy behind class actions is all plaintiff friendly, as it probably should be. And so I like that it's an uphill battle, right? If you were really out scorched earth to try to defeat certification, that's going to be very difficult. It's going to be much more difficult than trying to achieve certification on whatever basis you're aiming at. So I found the challenge interesting. And then after I'd been through a couple of class actions in my articling year in my first year at Castles, uh, I could see the difference, and this is going to sound stupid, everyone's going to be rolling their eyes at it, <laughs> but I mean, it meant something to me. Uh, I saw what could happen when someone like me was in this role, right? If you just line up all the people that don't care on the defense side and that really can't see any benefit to class actions and think it's ridiculous and bad policy. Uh, it, not only does the policy not work societally, but you know people are deprived of access to justice. So one of the first cases I ever did, one of the things that uh, that I suggested that we ended up doing was just offering a representative plaintiff access to our doctors. Uh, we just had a, a slate, because it's a big pharmaceutical company, we had a, mm -hmm. a slate of world-leading experts. And we said, look, we've got three or four of these doctors, pick one. And, you know, we'll, we'll lose that expert and let this doctor examine you and let's, you know, just, you'll have the benefit of his advice. 
And as it turns out, that doctor determined that uh, it wasn't the drug that was causing the problem. It was uh, the outcome of a, a fall that mm. uh, you know he, the uh, representative plaintiff had had spinal injuries from a fall earlier in his life. And uh, it was now having complications. And so the representative plaintiff went for surgery and he was almost entirely cured. And wow. I don't know if I hadn't been on that team if it ever would have occurred to anybody rather than just you know fighting that what he says isn't true to think about can we get him better information can we get him the benefit of the information that we have and so it's great for my client because we kill a class action just like that Mm -hmm. right but at the same time i've never seen a happier representative plaintiff right he thought he was fighting over money but he got his quality of life back yeah that's amazing Uh, so it doesn't always work out that way. Like, right. You're still on the defense side, but um, I, I I find it really intellectually interesting being on the defense side. And every now and then, I get the feeling that I'm I'm glad it's me over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's right. Maybe it's wrong. <laughs> and and presumably because I've been on the defense side too, not in class actions. But you know, sometimes you have to fight with your clients about that kind of thing, right? Not fight, but you know, they're saying no, we want we want to play hardball, and you're sort of saying, well, maybe if we do it this way, then there's a good result for both you and for the plaintiff. Do you do you find you have to sort of do take on that battle sometimes? It's really interesting how sometimes you do have that battle, and other times you have the opposite. Mm. You kind of just become almost a mediator for the process mm. because you know regardless of the size of the client you know you can have a very sophisticated well-heeled client that wants to fight even when they shouldn't and at the same time i've had you know the, the kind of companies you would think are evil conglomerates that uh you know i, I walk into a, a boardroom to discuss the case with them and everyone's ashen faced because for the most part these are doctors right mm. they invented something they thought was going to cure people this is their life's work and they're starting to believe from the clinical data that it's hurting people and they're pushing you know we need to get this off the shelves what can we do and rather than just you know overreacting to a case or two i'm actually on the other side i'm kind of like reining it in a little bit hang on wait let's let's see what the evidence is let's you know let's find out more about the people that are bringing this claim before we overreact and so in both cases it's it's interesting depending on the stance of your um on the stance of your client you're kind of giving them the benefit of the law either way right letting them know Mm. that you know maybe you should push a little bit harder here or you know maybe what you're proposing is a little bit too hard of a push and you'll regret it later great uh so then let's let's go more into the nuts and bolts of uh, what a class action looks like from the defense side. So at what points, uh, 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 what does the beginning of a class action look like for you? For me, uh, well, it it comes in in any number of different ways. Um, I would say for the most part, we get contacted after the class action has been commenced. And that's not the ideal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I... flatter myself that maybe I've headed off a couple of class actions by getting involved early enough. But uh, normally an existing client, the firm, or an external client uh, has been sued. It's a Class Proceedings Act uh, lawsuit, and so it's come in our direction. A fair number of those are also requests for proposal. Every mm-hmm. now and then we'll just be advised that you know one of the banks or insurance companies, what have you, is a uh, 
facing a class action and they're kind of organizing a beauty contest for the uh, big defense firms to explain what their strategy would be, you know, what their costs are going to be, how they'd approach the action, what relationship they have with plaintiff counsel on the case, that sort of thing. So I would say that after they've been sued, it's maybe 70% of the cases I see. Uh, there's another 20% or so where I'm managing a recall and what we're trying to do there is avoid a class action if at all possible. Uh, there's also certainly maybe that remaining 10% of, you know, just identifying somebody that is causing a lot of trouble for a company and, you mm -hmm. know, you have the sense that this might turn into a class action sooner rather than later. And also somewhere in that 10% is just a uh, second opinion. I've had a few cases where a client's concerned that they're not getting the best advice. Mm -hmm. And so they reach out to someone that specializes in class actions rather than the litigator they usually work with. And uh, so sometimes class actions come in that way when they realize that it might be useful to have somebody that's done this once or twice before rather than going with somebody that's familiar. We can keep them in the loop, but uh, it, it kind of does require specialized skills and knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in terms of the RFP, the the request for proposals, it's almost like a that's almost like a carriage motion from the defendant's side, right? You're trying to you're trying to yeah. get the business on your side. It's almost yeah, that's like interesting. A it's pretty close. Yeah. yeah, you have to you put together your litigation plan and you you know disclose what your costs are going to be to the quote court. Yeah, no, it, actually, if you think about it, it's quite similar. Yes. Mm -hmm. Except it doesn't get disclosed to the plaintiff side like the plaintiff carriage motions gets disclosed to the defendant side. So yes, that um, would be unfair. <laughs> okay, uh, so what role do you play in crisis management? Uh, are you actively involved in media relations, recalls, cost projections, that kind of thing? Uh, it, it depends. Some of our more uh, sophisticated or larger institutional clients have a lot of that team internally already. So we might be brought on and you know they, they have a team that's already managing the recall across the border and they've already got a PR department or uh, external uh, PR personnel that are already on the job and so we just kind of work collectively as a team. But uh, if, uh, if the defendant doesn't have that kind of resource then generally we are the quarterback. We'll you know, recommend PR firms that we've worked with in the past. Uh, we'll kind of isolate experts that we've worked with or that we know are some of the leading lights in whatever field is relevant to the action. And we kind of bring that as the suite of services that we bring in, especially if this is prior to a class action being launched, that can really be critical. Uh, because one of the things that a PR firm in today's age can do that, uh, they couldn't in the past is isolate potential representative plaintiffs because whenever somebody's upset about a company they tend to go on social media and complain about it a right. lot <laughs> mm -hmm. and so what we can do and this is you know you might ask something about behavior modification a little bit later uh, but this is part of the early defense strategy to a class action is just make sure that there is no reason for a class action mm -hmm. right if you find out that something's going wrong people are getting sick people are getting hurt uh, if you can isolate those people, then you can talk to them, find out what they want, and you know re resolve their claim at that stage, and then quickly act to make sure that it doesn't happen to anybody else. So it, you know I've had some 
recalls where I, I think it could have been a class of hundreds or thousands, but we managed to convince the client, uh, you know, don't wait this out, don't wait and see. Uh, you know, this is looks like something that's inherent in the product. Uh, shut it down, get it off the shelves right now where you've only got five people with injuries. Let's reach out to them, let's make things right with them and prevent any possibility that you're going to have a class of injured people. Uh, you know, that's, I think, the right thing to do for any number of reasons, litigation strategy, morally and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And have you ever predicted that a, a class action would be commenced and you were wrong or vice versa? We're caught by surprise. I, I don't know if I've ever been surprised that one was brought. Uh, but I've certainly been surprised when some haven't been. Uh, especially, well, I'm not going to get into my whole waiver of tort thing right. about uh, you know how, how sometimes even if there's no injury, people can still sue. But when that was realistic, then every uh, every uh, action brought with it the risk that uh, you know even if I'm sorry every re brought with it the risk that there was going to be a claim even if you fixed everything. Mm -hmm. And so we were a little quicker on the trigger then than I think we might be now uh, in terms of something that you might be able to recall or repair. Uh, but I've certainly had some cases where I'm working with a client, we've performed a recall, we've done other um, kind of ameliorative measures, and I have been surprised that no one got wind of it. There's one in particular I'm thinking of where it was in the news a little bit. It was a food labeling issue, and mm -hmm. I, you know nobody was ever um, nobody was ever hurt. But uh, it would be kind of like a, a very easy moral damages case, right? It was it was labeled right. as being something that people wanted, but it wasn't that. And so you could bring competition act, and you could bring uh, you know any number of other common law claims, but the damages in every case would be equal. Mm -hmm. And so I have been surprised that we don't have more kind of food labeling claims in Canada. They, they exploded in America over the last 10 years. And uh, for some reason, we're not doing it here. And I'm, I'm consistently surprised that those aren't going because typically you tend to see a lot of common issues mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, not a lot of actual personal injury damages. Hmm. Well, maybe we'll see an explosion if they get wind of this podcast. <laughs> um... <laughs> We can edit this part out. Okay, right. Uh, so you, you talked about institutional clients that are sort of more familiar with class actions. What what proportion, and this is a follow-up to the questions I sent you, but what proportion would you say are institutional clients that are used to class actions a bit more and ones that are a little less sophisticated in this area of your clientele? Yeah, uh, I think that's going to depend on your practice. Mm -hmm. um, I think when you're doing medical device and drug litigation, they've been through it several times in several jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're inventing medications and putting them on the market, then you're probably one of a select few companies that has done this a few times. Uh, but I would say for the most part, most class actions that I deal with, it's the client's first time. Wow. And you know, hopefully the last. Mm. But uh, uh, I think, well, I, I'm just thinking twice about that because now I'm thinking about you know institutional abuse, class actions, and copycat claims. Mm -hmm. Because even if it's the first, you know, even if you've only ever uh, gotten involved in something that 
uh, might lead to a class action once, it can spin off into seven or eight different actions in different jurisdictions. Right. So uh, you might uh, have some familiarity with the process, even though it's technically your first class action, it's your first cause of action, really. Um, but I would say for the most part, the clients that I deal with might be used to litigation, but they're not used to class actions. And so I, I go through the ringer every time of trying to explain certification and why we're not going to win the case of certification and why you have to bite your tongue and wait to, if you feel like you have solid proof that the claim has absolutely no merit you know i'm sorry but <laughs> this is it's going to take a while it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money and uh, this certification process is something you have to get through first almost in every case how how many of your clients are now going for consent certification? Is that becoming more of a thing or less of a thing? I would say more of a thing. Okay. And I don't know how Bill 161 is going to change that now mm. that we've kind of uh, altered the dynamics of uh, certification, made it a little bit tougher. Uh, when everyone is kind of operating on the same page, you know, this is the kind of thing that's certified and this is the kind of thing that isn't. Uh, you actually don't have to go to a hearing all that often if you're dealing with repeat player or class counsel mm -hmm. uh, because they'll have some sense of what's going to be certified and what's not and they've tailored the claim that way and putting together uh, a class action statement of claim and certification materials is a really challenging strategic exercise. It's the one thing that I, I wish I could do on the plaintiff side it, mm -hmm. just from an intellectual point of view. Um, but for the most part, they're not swinging for the fences. I think we've also seen a, a development towards simpler claims against fewer defendants to try to speed things along so you're not mired in six or seven years of litigation before you can have everyone comfortable with the degree of risk that a trial would pose and be able to settle. So I think generally we're, we're aiming at consent certifications a little bit more often and when there is something that plaintiffs raise that we disagree with we don't think it's going to be workable i find that for the most part and again it, it depends on who you're up against uh, if you actually have a good argument that there's no basis in fact for that element of the certification test to be met uh, that's a pretty pretty high threshold for a defendant to meet and so if you have reasonable counsel on the other side and you can marshal an argument like that, they'll generally let it go mm. uh, unless it's absolutely fatal to their claim. So I would say in the majority of cases, we're consenting to certification. That doesn't mean we don't fight. Uh, it's, uh, it can certainly be a hard negotiation. It can be one that takes a lot of evidence, a lot of exchange of documents, a lot of you know, witness interviews, discussions, different stakeholders getting involved, bargaining, risk sharing. Uh, it can be a lengthy process, but at the end of the day, it's less of a risk and more of a, a predictable outcome than going to a certification hearing. Mm -hmm. So I think for the most part, it's more of a chess game in a negotiating room than it is uh, a fight in a, in a courtroom for the most part. Because I, I guess the, the interest on the defendant's side is to narrow the issues and the interest on the plaintiff's side is to make sure as many people are included in the class as possible. So there's sort of a tug of war between the two of you. Um, and it's not even necessarily so much about the, the Section 51A criteria as as those two things, right? Do you think I'm right in saying that? Or 
what are the main sort of right. negotiating I, I think in, in broad strokes, I, I think that's about right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to depend on the merits of the case also, right? Mm -hmm. If there's one element of certification that you think that you can lean on, then you know the the size of the case might not necessarily matter uh, if that's the issue that you're trying to focus on. Uh, I'm trying to think of a maybe a clearer explanation for, or you know, maybe an example of what I mean. Uh, I guess I'll put it this way: our interests aren't necessarily unaligned, and that helps us negotiate sometimes. Mm -hmm. If there's a cause of action that we think we can beat, right? If we think that negligence is the one we can win on, and maybe some of the statutory causes of action are going to be a little bit more challenging, uh, and negligence is also the element that covers a broader class, then maybe we're not in that much disagreement with the plaintiffs. Maybe we can get them to drop some of the statutory causes of action if we'll consent to a negligence case. And so it's, it's not just about the class size, it's also about the merits of the case at the end of the day. And that, I mean, this is kind of what I enjoy about class actions, right? Is every case is unique. It's hard to speak broadly about mm -hmm. this. But you know, you pull a string here and three bells fall over on the other side of the room, right? <laughs> so you're trying to think 20 steps ahead. What's this going to look like at summary judgment? What's it going to look like at trial? And so although broadly speaking, clients or uh, the class wants the class to be as big as possible and Defendants want to narrow the issues, you know, not necessarily. Maybe it's just one issue that's screaming out on our side that carries risk and the other ones we're not as concerned about. Mm -hmm. uh, and in terms of recalls and compensation programs and things like that, how, how much of a difference do the, have you found those make at certification, at a certification hearing? I think it depends. I think in the in my cases and I would say in the jurisprudence just because you get a lot more access to cases that way just reading all the decisions that get made mm -hmm. it seems as though there's an assumption that uh, a class action is always the preferable procedure unless there's something wrong with it uh, that uh, you know if something is set up as a uh, recall and refund, or if there's a repair, or if there's an alternative dispute resolution mechanism, or uh, you know a, an administrative proceeding, I, I think the inclination of the bench generally, and maybe this isn't wrong, but you know I, I'm not sure, is to think that a class action would be the best way to go, just because it's you know a, a big threat and it tends to lead to big settlements, uh, unless there's something seriously wrong with the class action, in which case you start looking for alternatives. And I, I've never been completely convinced that that's the case. Uh, mm -hmm. Just having been on the defense side of these class actions, the number of zombie class actions that I've got on my, you know, in my document management folder right now, uh, you know, there are dozens of class actions on my desk that have gone absolutely nowhere for years. Mm. And Many of these cases, when they do resolve, resolve for very low amounts, going to uh, class members, take up tends to be very low. So I, I'm not saying necessarily that you should discount class actions as a preferable procedure. It's a great procedure. It, it does promote access to justice. I like class actions. That's why I'm here. But I really do think, you know, I, I do fall into that camp of people that cheered on a little bit uh, Bill 161 in as much as it really forces the court to look at those alternatives uh, 
and not just assess whether or not the alternative is any good, but assess the reality of class actions, right? They can lead to significant settlements, but what's that going to amount to for individual class members given delay and take up, right? If there's a process right now that isn't great, but it's going to get somebody 50% recovery in six months, that might well be better than certifying a class action that after council fees and delay gives them 60% six years from now. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that will actually happen in the decisions of the court once Bill 161 comes into, comes into effect? I don't know. Mm, I guess uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think there's enough, I should be a little careful what I say here. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's enough room for interpretation in terms of what predominance means. Right. And I guess, I don't know if this is for students necessarily, but what, what, what Bill 161 has done is it's introduced two new elements into the preferable procedure test in uh, section five, sub one, sub D of the Class Proceedings Act. And it now requires that the common issues predominate over the individual issues and that the class action be superior to any alternative procedure. And, you know, we, we can argue about predominance and what that means all day long, mm -hmm. but I hope superiority actually gets its moment in the sunlight because I, I, I would like to see uh, a, a careful review of what are the likely outcomes, and it's hard to do with the data we have, mm -hmm. but what are the likely outcomes of this class action and what are the likely outcomes of this alternative? Because a lot of my clients do their best in good faith to put something together. Right, and uh, they they value their their customers, their franchisees, whoever is making up the class, mm -hmm. and they do their best to establish something to try to get over whatever this issue is, and oftentimes I think that's met with suspicion, and you know maybe that's warranted, especially based on some of the early jurisprudence that was uh, in class actions, mm -hmm. but uh, I I would hope that there is that this prompts a more careful, a more skeptical look at class actions as always being a panacea and kind of being more realistic in that assessment. Mm. And it very well might be the best way to go most of the time. But uh, I, I do hope that the effort we put into trying to come up with an alternative process uh, won't necessarily be for nothing. Okay, great. Uh, and you mentioned in some of your written comments uh, that at certification, jurisdiction is becoming more of a, an issue. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Uh, I, I think even before Bill 161, there was some question as to where the best place to bring a class action might be. And the cost regime has something to do with that. You know, there's no costs in uh, BC, for example. Uh, so increasingly you're finding that there's there are some actions that are being brought there. There's also a, an increased move towards the federal court. We're seeing more of our, our institutional abuse class actions going towards the federal court uh, in part to uh, kind of avoid the the mess of the uh, Ontario court system, just, you know, the, the delay and the... Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Kind of the difficulty that you can have 
bringing emotion there, even though in class actions, for the most part, it, it tends to be very good with the availability of the judges. Uh, but especially when you talk about um, costs, uh, the, the cost structure in federal court is much more forgiving to, uh, to plaintiffs. And so uh, in the event that they're not successful. And so I think it kind of becomes part of the general strategy of trying to narrow and expedite class actions. Just I think we've seen enough class actions that lumber on for five, six, seven years that plaintiffs are trying to be a little bit more surgical, just name one or two defendants as necessary, bring it in a jurisdiction that's going to minimize costs and arguments about costs, and that will get you to a certification hearing if necessary as quickly as possible. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and then uh, we've also mentioned the, the carriage issue a little bit as well. I mean, what, what does a carriage motion look like from the defendant's side? You sort of rub your hands and go, oh, yay, now we've got more time to prepare our cert materials, or how does that work? Well, here, here's uh, kind of an interesting twist. Maybe I'll just uh, dodge the question a little bit with kind of a, a fun anecdote. Um, it can actually be a challenge for us. Uh, we're very happy to see that the appeals from uh, the appeals from carriage motions are going to be eliminated after Bill 161, mm -hmm. because when we're in crisis management mode, and if there's been a class action brought, we need to know who to talk to. And so when we're dealing with a mass tort situation where maybe people are injured or people are being exposed to something or they are on the street or, you know, if they're still in the middle of suffering damages and we want to take steps to try to minimize those damages and try to get some people help as soon as we can, which is, you know, something that we actually do with some frequency, mm -hmm. uh, we need to be able to do that on a class-wide basis. Uh, we can't, not only does the jurisprudence kind of discourage us from doing this, but it's also practically and legally difficult for us to do going around one by one trying to help out all of these people, right? Mm. There'll be some, uh, there'll always be some imputation that if we're trying to, you know, uh, find housing for people or replace a, a damaged product, uh, without counsel, without going through counsel, that it's in some way nefarious, mm -hmm. right? And so, especially in mass tort situations where you need to do something for everybody right now, uh, we really need someone there that's going to be able to bind the class and say, yes, we agree, we're not going to hold you responsible if you, know, you do this, if you try to fix this and it isn't perfect, you know, just on an interim basis. Uh, we need somebody to be able to speak for the class. And so uh, there are some cases I would say where we are waiting for the carriage motion to be heard, not only uh, because we're interested in what the arguments are going to be, but because we want to have an opponent <laughs> as right. soon as we possibly right. can. Because in some cases we're sitting there watching the situation get worse and worse as people are delaying putting their factums in and appealing about whether they should really be able to represent the class or not, while the class itself is continuing to suffer. Mm. Okay. Uh, so let's move on to settlement then. What, what factors, um, I mean, you said merits, obviously, but uh, other than that, or in addition to that, what factors mitigate in favor of settlement for defendants? So I, my response is generally merit. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I think that for the most part, even institutional clients, if they feel as though they're being done wrong by this claim, if there's no merit to it, they want to fight, even if it makes sense to settle. Mm -hmm. uh, I there there's an element of brand protection there, I, I think, but there's it's also just the the sense of people that spend their lives working for this company, right? If, if what they've done uh, didn't amount to a wrong, they typically do want to fight it out if they can, and they'll, they'll settle if necessary. But I find that the sense that maybe there is a lot of risk, the sense that maybe something didn't go as perfectly as it could have, militates towards settlement, and that that might not jive with the law and economics scholars. <laughs> But uh, in my experience, you know, it's people that drive these actions. And uh, generally speaking, although a settlement is always something that's considered, it's harder to bring somebody to it when they feel like they haven't done anything wrong. And, you know, apart from that, if you are just speaking purely about economics and if this is being approached as a business decision, as it probably should be in most cases, the real issue is less the threat of, judgment at the end of the day. Uh, I, I think that that's how you assess what a settlement uh, should amount to. Is, mm -hmm. you know, what, is, what is the amount of claim and what is the risk that you're actually going to have that realize at trial. But I think a big proportion of the pressure to settle just comes from the fact that it's a procedural juggernaut, right? That your staff mm -hmm. is going to be tied up doing this for five, six, seven years that uh, you're going to have to be paying external counsel and they're going to be asking you for documents and asking you for further information over and over for another five to seven years. The headlines are going to be there. Your reserves are going to be ha are going to have to be held in mm -hmm. case of a future judgment. And so an awful lot gets put on hold and put in stasis pending uh, a class action and often pending certification. This is actually why... Uh, zombie actions are such a pain for defense right. because you know every news story about them has to include the statement you know and you know there's a class of people that are suing them for this and they've never had a chance to disprove that uh and they've had to disclose to shareholders every single year that there's this outstanding potential liability of a hundred million dollars even mm -hmm. though we've heard nothing about it in the last three years uh and so it's that kind of frustration and that uh that delay and the procedure that motivates people to settle reasonably quickly uh, just because it's an enormous inconvenience. But presumably you wouldn't prescribe, uh, subscribe to the view that uh, there are these sort of uh, blackmail settlements out there. I mean, I know they're maybe more prevalent in the US, but do you, do you see any of that kind of thing in Canada or is that really just a kind of um, boogeyman that doesn't really exist here? I don't know if I'd use that term, okay. uh, but I do. I do see class actions brought that do not have any apparent intention to go forward. Okay. Uh, I, I've got a number of statements of claim on my desk, and even arranging a a conference call to discuss the possibility of, at some point, getting certification materials can take weeks or months. Mm. Uh, for the most part, the plaintiff's bar is exceptional and a pleasure to work with and dedicated to what they do and they're doing good and important work. There are also people that are uh, 
you know, whether it's that they're swamped with work or that this is their business model, I couldn't say. Uh, there are a lot of class actions brought that simply don't move forward. Mm. Uh, and would that be blackmail, just trying to get a settlement? Uh, otherwise, this will just hang out there forever. Or is it, you know, just honestly bringing a claim and then either hoping to work with somebody else on it or, you know, you've got 200 claims and it just takes you a long time to get around to it. Yeah, I couldn't say I'm not privy to that thinking. I, I will say I've had cases where I've called uh, I've called plaintiff counsel to discuss getting uh, certification materials, and they asked me if I was interested in taking the case on for them. <laughs> what? And I don't think they realized when I called and identified myself that I was defense counsel. <laughs> Okay. So, I mean, it's it's That's hard to, to remain completely sanguine about right. every single case when that happens. But um, I I also wouldn't subscribe to the view that it's the majority or uh, you know a, a plurality of, of cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that almost all the class actions that you see moving forward in in the press or uh, in decisions are being brought by very competent and uh, worthy class counsel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's then move on to behavior modification. Um, how, which comes first, do you think, the class action or the behavior modification? Because I know some defense counsel are a bit skeptical about this. What's your view? I think it really depends on the subject matter of the class action. Uh, in some cases, it's kind of been one and then the other and then back again, mm-hmm. right? There, there was uh, no behavior modification, and then there was a class action. So now there is behavior modification. Uh, but I find that in regulated industries, that has no effect whatsoever. Hmm. So if you're a heavily regulated industry, if you're an automotive uh, company, if you're a pharmaceutical company, uh, there is a strict code of conduct as to how to behave, and it keeps you out of liability on a daily basis. And if you do something unique and step outside of that regulatory regime, you run the risk of not being able to operate anymore. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a tightly regulated space, uh, I think a class action you know, might be important or necessary in some cases, but it isn't going to affect any behavior modification because the way they behave is legislated and nothing is going to take them away from that. Uh, And I think that's why you have more than one justification for class actions, right? Mm. Because in in many cases, behavior modification alone wouldn't do the trick. Uh, But in products and in more unregulated products, I can tell you that it has had a significant effect on the way I advise clients. Uh, because rather than, you know, if there's no such thing as a class action, there might not be as much of a motivation to rush out, get the recall done as quickly as possible uh, to set up alternative measures, right? The fact that there is a risk of a class action where, you know, even if there is no wrong necessarily, you still might be trapped in this. Uh, procedural quagmire for years, uh, the risk of that coming, and the risk of having to prove that you've done nothing wrong, uh, is so significant and so costly that my advice tends to be, how big is the class right now? Can we can we cut it off there? Right. Mm. 
And so a lot of my early intervention advice is exactly what I think the, uh, uh, the drafters of the report in 1982 were kind of expecting, which is I'm telling my clients, go out there and make this right <laughs> as, as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, did you have anything else to add, Jeremy? Because I think that's pretty much all I wanted to ask for today. No, I, I think uh, I would just add that uh, I, one thing I might mention is uh, if there's anybody out there that's thinking about becoming a class action lawyer, uh, you might want to consider also a uh, kind of area of specialty. I think that people don't necessarily say, okay, this is a class action about security, so I'm going to go find a class action lawyer, mm. and then he'll just have to learn about securities. Uh, I think for the most part, there's a search for a subject matter expert that has done multiple class actions. And uh, I don't necessarily think that's always the best approach uh, because you know there are only going to be a few uh, subject matter experts that have a significant number of class actions under their belt in any given area. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I will say that it's also not particularly helpful to be only good at the procedure. So what, what I've managed to do is kind of do a little bit of everything and, and you know, had to specialize in products so that I do have that expertise when it comes time to get onto a file. But I also generally build myself as, you know, I do class actions generally. And so when we're doing an RFP, I'm, you know, just kind of somebody that can back up a subject matter expert. You know, if you've defended, you know, 50 Competition Act claims, then you and me together are a great team for a Competition Act class action. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if there's anybody like me in that uh, second year class action seminar, uh, I would advise learn something else too. <laughs> learn class actions, but also become a really, really good lawyer at a specific kind of action so that you can get yourself started. Yeah, you almost have to be a double expert, don't you? And it, it's, uh, it can be tricky when you're starting out because if you're working at a firm that does a lot of class actions, then they're going to be doing a lot of different things and you have to sort of learn a lot of different areas which which i really loved but you know it can be quite tricky to sort of get a handle or specialize on one or two areas so that's good advice well, i think and the great thing about class actions is you know it, it takes a long time to get anywhere and you have a lot of time mm -hmm. to sit and think right so you do have the time to sit down and maybe not become an expert but become conversant in what you're doing and then kind of relate to the expert and work in a team yeah. The only exception to that is when you're drafting the statement of claim. You'd always have a lot of time then. But defense always yes. don't have to worry about that. So, yeah, yeah. From the defense perspective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks very much for your time, Jeremy. Thanks for coming on to the show today. And um, I think we'll call it a day there. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. 
Till next time, stay safe and stay classy. <laughs>